Hello, hello, and welcome to my tennis journey. Um, if you get a chance whilst you're listening today, please hit subscribe or follow. It'd be much appreciated. Um, now, when I started this podcast, I really wanted to to bring to life the amazing journeys that tennis can lead you on, amazing journeys through life. And today is just an absolutely brilliant example of how Chris McPherson went from the tennis courts of Derbyshire to representing Brazil in the Olympics. It is an absolutely fantastic story. I hope you enjoy it. Over to Chris. Hello, I'm Chris, and this is my tennis podcast. At the moment, I'm living in the south of Brazil in a city called Porto Alegre, right in the south of Brazil, which is more famous for football than anything else. But it's uh, it's a great place to live. Looking back at when I first started tennis, well, to be honest, I can't remember when I first started. It was pretty much as soon as I could hold a racket. Uh, my mum had me playing tennis, and then I started at Church Broughton with uh, with Jane Rushby there. And then from a young age, as soon as I could hold a racket, I was playing tennis. Anything with a racket and a ball, and I was involved with a group of friends there. When I was six or seven, that sort of age, and then we played under eights, under tens, uh, with Jane Rushby and Ray Bailey, uh, Remember the times of Ray Bailey listening to Superman and, and all the all the fun and games that he used to give us at a young age, focusing mostly on the on the fun of tennis, which is I guess why what captured uh, my interest in tennis from a young age was the the enjoyment uh, of the classes with both Ray and with uh, and with Jane. Uh, when I was young, I also played a lot of hockey uh, from a young age. Uh, my partly because my mom played hockey. But also, I think it was because it was good. Uh, my parents thought it was a good thing to have both a, an individual sport, with tennis being very individual, and then also have hockey as a team sport to develop as a person and not just as a, not just so competitive as tennis is a very competitive sport, even at a, even at a young age. Uh, it's still singles is one-on-one, so it was good. Uh, it was good to play a team sport. The us growing up as a Derbyshire tennis player, ah, there's many, many... <laughs> Many memories of, of being a uh, of being a player back in Derbyshire, and the the two main tournaments that we used to play through the year have to be the Derbyshire Closed and Derbyshire Open, at Chesterfield and at Watchorn. Uh, I remember the the Derbyshire Closed was the big one of the year uh, up at Chesterfield, and then you never knew if you're going to be on a clay court, if you were going to be on the on the hard court, so if it was going to rain, and probably one of the, looking back, some of the best times were probably when it was actually raining. And then the things you used to do, playing football in the rain, playing ping pong on a on an improvised table with anything to be a net. And we, of course, we had no ping pong racket. So it was just anything you could get your hands on, plates, saucepans, bits of wood, anything we could do really to, to get a game going to keep us occupied during the rain delays. And then uh, and sometimes I remember the, the referee or Bob Gibson used to try to call us to go and play and then be like, no, five more minutes and then. The tennis match would be delayed because we were still involved playing ping pong or football was 2-2 and it was next goal wins and it was taking some time before the goal the goal happened. So I remember the, uh, the for most part of it was the fun side of being involved in the tournament and uh, the actual tennis wasn't always the priority um, as, a, as when we got when we were really young, sort of under, under 12 age. Um, the best bits about being a junior as well were the, uh, was then the... We started to get a bit more focused on the tennis now. When I got a little bit older, I got involved in the county setup and then the county coaching and county matches, which my mum was was heavily involved in organising. Um, county matches in Derbyshire we used to travel a lot at weekends to, 
to play other counties. And then, of course, that involves meeting a lot of other friends. And then some friendships that lasted uh, lasted till today. And I still keep in touch with people who are now living all over the world there. Uh, one of my best friends, one of my good friends there was Andrew Naidu. And then I played a lot of doubles with him as I grew up. And he now lives in America. You know? So friends now from tennis, from these little uh, playing tennis as a Derbyshire junior. Now I've got friends worldwide, which is uh, which is one of the best things I think that tennis has, has brought for me. I can't remember what it, the first year I played for the Derbyshire men's team was. Um, but I remember being being selected to go. To be honest, it's that, that long ago. I can't even remember where it was at the first one. The I think it might have been Cambridge, the first one I went to for, for a couple of days. But then I remember being uh, there was the last one. It was one of the last one of the, the group. There was Art, Chris Archer, James, uh, Cy, uh, you know, and I was the last one of the little group to be to be invited to go and play. And I remember being really pleased when I get the phone call from Dennis that I was going to be is going to go and play. And it wasn't it was as much the going away with the guys as it was actually being selected to play you now you have the, the nerves and the emotion of playing now in a team event because it's different playing in a team event now than playing for yourself and it's a very individual sport so the whole time was Derbyshire was one of the, the few counties really that had a, a a team event from a young age and then that culminated in the Derbyshire having one of the, the I my opinion still is this the Derbyshire has one of the the strongest groups sense of team now so even when you go away, it's still a, a stronger sense of a team in the Derbyshire group of players than there is in any in any of the other the counties, I think, when you look at, at County Week uh, specifically, uh, which is, I think, one of the things that helps overcome and is difficult games and stuff. You have that the desire to win, not just for you, but for the, you know, for the team as well. The most memorable year at County Week um, must be the year that we stayed at, we stayed up at Eastbourne. Um, we got promoted, and then I remember with the first year we went, we went down, and we managed to stay up on the last day against Yorkshire, and that was a battle. I think me and Sai had lost the first two of our two games, and the other two got the other two two pairs had won both theirs. I think we were four two up, and then but we were down on both, and then me and Sai was I think we won seven six seven six if I remember rightly, but it was a long time ago, and I've had two children since then, so things have got a little bit blurred over the years. Uh, but I still, I never forget the the final point uh, to keep us up that year. It was a it was Stornywell hitting an ace down the tee, which, as you know, is uh, is not one of the most common sights to see on a in the Derbyshire men's team. But it was uh, ah, it was a memory. And then, of course, the guys on the courts next was just abandoned their games because it didn't matter anymore. Uh, we'd stayed up, we'd hit the five rubbers, and we'd stayed up. And I think that memory will be uh, will stay will stay with me for years uh, years to come. And uh, that was one of the, the best moments, I think, for me at County Week. Um, I played another couple of years afterwards and then uh, a couple of times. But nothing will, nothing will beat that. Nothing will beat that memory. So moving a little away from tennis, uh, in 2008, I, uh, I actually decided to go, to go backpacking through South America. Um, the decision to go backpacking actually was because of tennis now. Because I was, I was coaching in uh, David Lloyd and doing a tennis tournament for, for under 10s. And it was outside in a typical British morning and a cold, miserable and, and drizzling. And I remember sat there thinking, I love tennis, but I'm not sure I'm in the right country. So, I, you know, it wasn't long after that. I bought my tickets. and I, I decided to go to South America and then I, I worked and saved money. And then that was it. One day in September, it was uh, I decided to, to get my backpack, the money in the account and then see what happens. Now I just left. I actually had a one-way ticket to Argentina to the despair of my parents. Um, but I just had a one-way ticket to Buenos Aires. But what happens, happens. Nah. 
And then I traveled a little bit. And then when I was in Chile, uh, I actually met Patricia, who's now my wife. Uh, we met. And then we met, we separated, and then we obviously we traveled uh, to different places. Then we met up again and stuff. And then at the end of my trip, I went back to England. And then, of course, we kept in touch. And I thought, all right. And then she said, oh, why don't I come to Brazil on holiday? And I kind of had to laugh. And I just sent six months traveling. I've been back in England for three weeks. And I thought I'd go on holiday for another three weeks to Brazil, which was a bit of a joke, really, now. But it was uh, those three weeks that we stayed together. And then that was the time I really decided that, right. Now I'm going to I'm going to move to Brazil. So shortly after that, I made the decision and uh, and left the Brazil. Now. And that's when I moved and started my life in, in Porto Alegre. Now, this was, in 2009, I moved to Brazil. Now. And then tennis obviously is is involved in Brazil. But in the south of Brazil here, tennis has a it's not as big because it's, there's not many indoor clubs. And Brazil, in Porto Alegre, here going to Sul, it's a little bit of in denial. Really. They don't. It's in Brazil, so it shouldn't rain. But it rains a lot here. So the problem with, with tennis here is there's not many indoor courts. There's a lot of rain and it's all clay. So it's difficult for tennis to grow here until they decide to they accept that the weather's not great and we build some more indoor courts. Uh, that's the problem. So then I, I got a bit more involved back in my hockey again. And then I sent an email to see if I could help uh, develop hockey as a sport in Brazil because it, it doesn't really exist. And then I ended up uh, a random meeting. The opportunity knocks on the, the, the most random times there. I got a phone call saying the, the, the national coach was traveling through Porto Alegre back from a, an event that was happening in, in Argentina. Did I want to go to the airport and have a chat with him? So I thought, ah, why not? Now, nah, nothing to lose. So I went and met up with him and he said, ah, I told him where I used to play and I played county hockey and I played for Midlands. And he said, OK, come to the, you've got a, a, a couple of weeks training with the, the national team and a couple of weeks in Rio. Do I want to go? Nah. Of course, no. Nah. Offer anyone, do you want to come to Rio for three weeks? No one's going to say no now. Nah. So that was the start of my really my journey in the national team. And then from there, to, to not going to, because this story about the Olympics could go a long way now. Many things happened over the years. But that was the start of my journey now. The first time I represented Brazil was in Chile in 2014. And then we qualified for uh, Toronto 2015 Pan American Games, which is the first time Brazil had actually qualified for uh, Pan American Games in hockey. And that was our Olympic qualifying tournament. Now, for that, we had to finish in the top six uh, to, to get our place in the Olympics. Now, we had different, uh, different criteria to, to classify, uh, to qualify for the Olympics. It wasn't a given place, but our criteria is obviously much lower being the host nation. So we had to finish in the top six. So then we had the group games and we beat Mexico. Uh, 1-0, we beat Mexico. It's like a little bit like the, the ace of Thornywell. It's a game you'll never forget now that we... We had to beat them to avoid Argentina in the crossover. And we could still be playing today. It was 1-0 and it was the game. They hit the post. That keeper made a save. The ball went over. The ball went wide. The, the ball was never going to go in our goal. It was, the, it was the day that we could be playing today and they still wouldn't have scored. So that was 1-0. And then we got the crossover game in the first one. Um, to, and we played the USA, which were much, much higher ranking than us well, in, the, in the world rankings. But it was a game that we knew we had a chance. We trained hard. Uh, to get to this point, you know. So it was a lot of training. And we'd basically, we were training for this game. We knew it was going to be the USA or, or Cuba that we were going to have a crossover against. And then we managed to, we were 1-0 up. Uh, and as you know, I don't, if you know, there's a hockey is a game, it's 60 minutes, four quarters of 15. And at 60 minutes, the hooter goes and that's it. Now game over. And I think it was 57 and a half, 58 minutes. And they equalized to make it one all. 
And I remember at 55, I was playing in defense. And I said to the goalkeeper, I said, uh, wow, it's the name I keep. I said, mate, we're going to do it. You know, it's five minutes to go. The ball was up front. We were in control of the game. And the, the emotion of the, uh, them scoring at 57, 58 minutes was just like you'd been hit by a bus. You know, it was this moment of someone taking away that dream that was so close. Because if we win this game, we go to the semifinal and then we'd be in the top four now. So classification would be guaranteed for real. And then, and then the Hooter went at, at 60 minutes and then we went to penalties now. And you had the feeling of you lost now because it was, we were one nil up and then, uh, and then we managed to win on penalties. And again, that was another, a moment that when, uh, when our keeper saved the, the fourth penalty you know, and the, the run then to, to be with the keeper and the teams and the coach came running from the stands and it was, it was just a memory that you'll never forget. Now I don't think I'll ever celebrate anything quite the same because then you knew then that was it. We'd qualified for the Olympics. All the training, the six months traveling was all worth it then for that moment that Brazil was officially qualified for the Olympics was something that will never, never quite, you know, nothing will ever reach that, I think, for me in my, in my sporting career. Um, so that was pretty, pretty special. From then, obviously, then there was the, the training was only going to get more intense. Uh, the, and I obviously had a, I had a young family night before traveling to to the Toronto games I had Chloe who was at the time I think she was two she was almost two I think yeah she's gone 2013 so 2015 she would have been two and then so my wife was at home with a young child and then then the we had the Olympics and then we had big meetings with the team and how are we going to train for the Olympics and then a lot of the training was done at home and this is something I think that a lot of players actually it, it caught my attention uh only after the Olympics really as the as the a lesson that I, I like to pass to my students now, beach tennis players is is the hidden training that you do behind the scenes. And I remember uh, training for the Olympics before we had the the group training. It was in November or December, which is hot in Porto Alegre, you know, and a hot I mean like 35, 36 degrees. And the only time I had to train physical training, like running, was uh, between 11 8, 11 p.m. and one o'clock in the morning when I needed to sleep to be able to get up for work the next morning. And I remember running five kilometers around a shopping center um, near my house uh, at midnight. And I was the only lunatic doing it. I was the only one running, but I needed to do it. Nah? So I remember this training and we called it the hidden training nah, that no one sees. And that was the most, I think, the biggest impact for me to, to reach the level that we reached, that we needed to reach, which was our maximum. Super Olympics wasn't as high as the other guys, but it was the highest level we could reach was through this training at unsociable hours as much as we possibly could. And then, uh, and then obviously, then we had the the traveling. We stayed in Argentina, and then we, uh, and then finally we reached the the Olympics. Now August came round, the end of July, August, then that was it. Then we went to the Olympics, and I think the the best bit um, is apart from the games, obviously. And then when you you run out and you got the national anthem, that's something very very special. But I think anyone who's experienced it, you'll you never forget that. And then, but there were, I think the best bits were arriving in the, in the Olympic Villa, you know, staying in the athlete's village. And then the treatment you have, you know, you, you really know you've hit the top of a sport there. You know, the people you're rubbing shoulders with, the medical team, the, the diets that you follow, the training, the other guys that you see in the gym, you know, you're training in the gym in the athlete's village and you, you know, you see the guys there, they are the elite athletes. And I think that was something that's, that was very special um, there. And then, of course, I, uh, the other part that was very special for me was seeing my young daughters at the, at the games now because we'd uh, been away from them for four months. And then I remember the first game, we were told that 
when the game finishes, you have a very strict protocol of what you have to do now. The final whistle goes, then you get some water, then the people who have been called need to go for anti-doping. Then you go through the like a little uh, through the media center. The people who the journalists want to talk to some players, da da da. And then then it's an ice bath. And then after that, when you've done everything, ice bath, shower, change, da, da, then you can go and see your family who've come to watch the game. I hadn't seen my young daughter for, for, for four months now. Mia was five months old. So I, I left her to go training when she was one month old, which is very hard. And then, so of course, the final was the went. I knew exactly where they were in the stadium. And I ran and jumped over the, the, the advertising boards. And I remember pulling myself up on the on the, the the bars to reach them and give them both a little kiss. And uh, and I remember it was something really special because it was something that I knew we weren't supposed to do it. But, you know, I hadn't seen my girls for four months. There was no way I was going to wait another half an hour, do all this, this, these, you know, bureaucratic things instead of speaking to my children. So, you know, I could go on for hours about the Olympics. Obviously, it was a very special time for me. Um, but I think we'll have to uh, close it up there. The In Brazil now, um, Tennis has actually opened another a door for me um, completely randomly now in beach tennis, which is a, a sport that's growing massively in Brazil. Uh, it's like a mix between volleyball, um, uh, volleyball, tennis. You could almost call it, I don't know what you hear, they call it fresco ball. It's like bat and ball on the beach. Um, basically, it's a court the same size as volleyball. The net's uh, one meter 70 high. And the ball, we use a, a mini orange ball, and it's like a paddle. The racket's very similar to a paddle racket. Um, so it's like a mix of everything, but it's like a fever here. And I'm now coaching here in the, in the South. I'm playing uh, professionally. You know, not professionally, it's not really, but they call it the, the professional category. Um, but I don't live on the prize money, even though there isn't any prize money in most of the tournaments. Uh, but it's great fun. And uh, I, keep, uh, I keep actually, every time I see a little post about things going on in England, I see Church Broughton are building a paddle court, I think, if I'm not mistaken. And I sent a message to James and Tom. I said, guys, you need to put a beach tennis court down. It's just sand. You know, you just see sand, two posts and a net. That's all you need. It's eight by eight. It's not a, it's not a, a big court. And then, of course, they replied, no, it'll just be a mud court and stuff. And we joke. But it's, in Brazil, it's something that's growing unbelievably big uh, here. There's, in the south, the difference between beach tennis and tennis is that they've built a lot of indoor centers like where I work now I'm outside my, my club here and they do they have two indoor courts and the one close to my house they have four indoor courts you know um, and there's more and more indoor courts growing because it's a, it's a sport that's growing very very quickly uh, coming back to Derbyshire um, to keep up to date with what's going on there I follow Instagram of, of Rob of James, Tom, Simon, all the, all the guys, you know, and I keep up to date with what's going on. And it's great to see the, the Instagram of Derbyshire Tennis now, and then kept up with County Week and the updates from the guys and see what they're doing. And it's, it's great to see everyone, uh, even though their lives are taking them uh, on different routes, they're still all heavily involved in tennis. And it's great to see the group actually still involved in the in County Week. You'll make an effort to go. Um, I'd still, it's still my dream to one time to, to be able to get back in July to play County Week. Um, at least one more time before I get too old for it. Uh, it would be great. Um, obviously, the pandemic playing havoc with those plans at the moment. But hopefully in the next couple of years, before I get too old, I'll be able to get back for one more year and at least go with the guys and play one or two days. The, the young guys look like they're playing really well and doing a great job. So I think I'll have to train hard to, to, to get a place back. But even if uh, going down there and having a beer with the guys is, uh, is something that's, that's important. The, as a message for, for younger players growing up in Derbyshire tennis, I think it has to be the, the idea of, of 
that came from hockey really is the opportunity knocks when you've got no idea. Uh, you don't know when the opportunity is going to come up and grab it with both hands. Uh, go for it. And then, and training, uh, training, 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 when no one's looking. Uh, you, if you just train when, when people are looking or when you're on the show court or when you're with your coach, then you'll reach a good level. But if you go over and above that and train when no one's looking and you've got the motivations to do it yourself, then you can reach much, much higher goals. And I think that's the message that I would like to pass. And I pass the players here. And I, I, know, I think is the most important lesson that I learned. Luckily, I didn't, I, maybe for tennis, I was a little bit late now. But for, for hockey, I definitely learned that lesson in time to be able to, to reach high levels. So for me, that's about it now. Thanks for listening to my podcast. And, uh, and I'll keep up to date with what's going on in Derbyshire.